0: to Central Study Hour here at Sacramento Central Seventh-day Church. We're so glad that you have joined us today, and whether you're watching locally or around the world, we're happy, so happy that you're with us. To begin our song service this morning, we'll turn to hymn number 309, I Surrender All. And this song comes to us from the Matamala family from Orsono, or Sorno, Chile, (laughs) I got that right, and we'll sing verses one, two, and three. To be fully surrendered, we can have that peace and assurance that we don't have to worry as long as we're surrendered. Our next song is Face to Face, hymn number 206, and we'll be singing verses 1 and 2. Nice. To that day when it will not be dark anymore, we'll see His face in the clouds of glory. If you have a special request, visit us at our website at saccentral.org. Click on the contact us link. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and the title of your hymn, and we'll so ha- be happy to sing that hymn with you on an upcoming Sabbath. Now, as we go through our topical index. We come to the last song about love in the home. And we'll be singing hymn number 654, verses one, two, and three. Ha- Lord bless our homes. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another Sabbath that we're privileged to come before you in your house. Thank you for loving us, for blessing our homes. We know that it all starts in the home and reaches out to others beyond. We pray that you will use us today to be a light to those around us. Thank you, Lord, for um, your watch care through the week and that you will guide us on our journey in the future until you come. We thank you for the lesson study that we brought to us this morning, and we ask for the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson study this morning will be brought to us by Pastor Chris Buttery, the senior pastor here at Sac Central Seventh-day Adventist Church.
1: Thank you. What a blessing to be learning some new songs. Some of them are a bit of a struggle, aren't they? But we're getting there. It's all good. Um, nice to learn some new ones and uh, good, to, good to be here studying God's Word this morning and uh, of course, of those that are joining us, we're so glad that you're doing so as well. Um, we want to make sure that you call in for your free offer. Every program, we offer a free offer. It's a presentation of this presentation is a copy of this presentation on CD or DVD, and the reason we want to make that available is because we share a lot of information in these in this one hour together, and so we want you to have that and then pass it on with to somebody else that could benefit. It's offer number 21526 this week. Just don't forget to put a C in front of that so we know which uh, program you're referring to. And uh, all you need to do is call in to 916 457 uh, or email us at csh at saccentral.org. We'll get that out to you. Make sure you give us your name and your address and tell us whether you want the CD or the DVD. we love to hear from you as well. Let us know where you're uh, watching from. Tell us how you're enjoying the programs and how you might be sharing them with others. And... Um, And uh, please, uh, just let us know how you're, uh, how you're enjoying everything. We love to hear how people are being blessed by the programs right here in the sanctuary, don't we? Uh, We know that these uh, programs are going all over the globe and uh, it's just such a blessing to know that uh, what we do here has such a far-reaching influence, not only in lives locally, uh, but also abroad. And so, please, uh, please let us know where you're watching from. Well, we're into our last lesson for this quarter uh, on the book of Luke. Have you been enjoying the study? Uh, it's been a, an excellent journey, a wonderful ride together as we've, uh, we've looked at Dr. Luke's rendition of the Gospels. And we're in lesson number 13, Crucified and Risen. And uh, so that means next week we start an entirely different lesson study and we'll talk about that uh, before we're done here today. But uh, let's, let's take a look at our memory text here, it's Luke chapter 24 and verse 7 and it says, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And so, that's what we'll be delving into here this morning, looking at the closing scenes of Jesus' life on earth. You know, there's a little statement in the book, Desire of Ages, where we're encouraged to spend a thoughtful hour uh, meditating, thinking about the life of Jesus, and especially grasping the closing scenes and uh, so we 'll be doing that here in today 's study. I trust you as you 've been reading and preparing for today 's review uh, that you 've been blessed as well i, I don 't know where to begin or where to end in this study to be honest because it uh, 's so rich uh, every every step every every step Jesus took toward Calvary and then beyond. Uh, so uh, filled with uh, with lessons and life and meaning to us. When you go to Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 through 45, and we can just run over there, uh, Jesus, from a very young age, knew what His life calling was. And you read the story in Luke chapter 2, His family attends the Passover, it's the first Passover Jesus is attending. And all male uh, children from the age of 12 and up were required to attend the three annual feasts that would occur in Jerusalem each year, the Passover and uh, uh, you had also Pentecost and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, rather the Feast of Tabernacles. And so each each male child, 12 years of age and up, was required to attend. And Jesus is 12 and He attends here in Luke chapter 2, He attends the festivities, the services there at Jerusalem and as He's there, it begins to dawn on Him what He must do, what His life calling is, what His direction and purpose and meaning for life is. Uh, Let's take a look here, we'll read a couple of verses together. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, this is verse 41, then verse 42, and when He was 12 years of age, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the Feast. And uh, you probably remember the story, Jesus is there, He's witnessing different things, uh, taking it all in, uh, the story continues and Jesus is found where? Do you remember? He's found in the temple and what's going on in the temple? What's going on in the temple is uh, the, the teachers are there, the rabbis, the, 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 the pastors, so to speak, of the flock and uh, Jesus is in there asking them questions and, uh, and the, the questions are so profound the questions intimate answers, and Jesus is not trying to presume to teach them. He doesn't want to let on that he's teaching them. He's 12 after all. How could he be teaching these grown ups? They'd be offended knowing they'd be being educated by a 12 year old boy. But the questions were designed to draw out the truth from these educated and learned men. And the Bible says that they were impressed with this young man. Now, on the way, uh, after the festivities, Joseph and Mary left, and do you remember who they left behind? They left Jerusalem, they left Jesus. Um, they left Jesus and Jesus is still teaching the grown-ups, He's still teaching the religious leaders and they, uh, they panic and for three days they search for Him. I don't know if that's a full 72-hour period or just within the th- a three-day period but they look for Him high and low and when they found Jesus, they gave Him a hard time, you remember? We've been looking everywhere for you. And what did Jesus say? In verse forty-nine, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus, in effect, disassociates himself from uh, the ch- from being the boy of Joseph to recognizing that he is really the son of God. He is the son of God. I'm about I'm going. I need to be about. I am have been about my father's business. And so Jesus, at that feast. It dawned on him what his role, what his calling, what his life would be. The way was paved for Jesus. Jesus was to be led to the cross, the Roman instrument of torture and death. The good news being, however, that his death would be vicarious. It would be a substitutionary death. In other words, Jesus would die for you and he would die for me. And so Jesus was committed. He knew what he must do. In the, on Sabbath afternoon's lesson, The author um, uh, highlights that. He says, in the second paragraph, he says, throughout his life, Jesus knew about the inevitability of the cross. Many times the Gospels, uh, the word must is used in relationship to the suffering and death of Jesus. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be lifted up and so on. And then down the bottom, it says, to Jesus, the journey to the cross was not an option. It was a must. Jesus knew it must happen. Why, Why did he know it must happen? It must happen if men and women, boys and girls, could be saved at last. And so, He submitted Himself, surrendered Himself to His ultimate destiny, which was the cross. But there was more to the cross, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Let's go over to Sunday's lesson. Let's dig in right now. Let's talk about Gethsemane, the fearsome struggle. Although Jesus, was from a young age, was committed to laying down His life for the sins of the world, there came a time for Jesus when he needed to make a once and for all final decision to go through with that in order to secure the salvation of, of mankind. Uh, you probably, in, in what we think about in life, our own life experiences, there sometimes comes a time uh, when, uh, when we know this is it and there's no turning back. Uh, for example, uh, you're uh, maybe purchasing a house, you go into closing and then you put your, your, sign, uh, your sign on that dotted line, right? And you, make that, you make that down payment. When you, uh, if you get on a plane, if you don't like getting on planes, you're a little claustrophobic, you're sitting, sitting on that plane, what happens when that door shuts? That's it, and no turning back, you're on that plane and you're heading for your destiny, you see. For Jesus, that time came in Gethsemane, for a once and for all decision. He'd been saying yes all along, but it was the once and for all decision, He was going to go through with it. By the way, the word Gethsemane in Aramaic is the word oil press. It's the word oil press. And if you know anything about how oil presses worked back then, uh, if you were were to be pressed under that grinding stone, it would hurt. (laughs) Here Jesus is in Gethsemane, the oil press, and His life is beginning to be squeezed out of Him for the sins of the world, there's more that we could talk about with regard to Gethsemane and what that all represents. But let's go over to Luke chapter 22 and let's read there the account in in uh, Luke's rendition of the Gospel. Luke chapter 22, we're going to read verses 39 to 46. And someone has for us Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6? Who has that? Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6? Okay, right over here. Ah, okay, Lois, Fantastic. fantastic, okay. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46 to begin with, and notice the story. "'Coming out where He went to the Mount of Olives, as He was accustomed, and His disciples also followed Him. When He came to the place, He said to them, "'Pray that you may not enter into temptation.' And He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down and prayed, saying, "'Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from Me.'" Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation." The Bible says that Gethsemane was a place that Jesus often retreated to for rest, for reflection, for prayer. And you can reference that in John chapter 18 and verse 2. We don't know really the exact location of the garden, uh, but it it would have been situated on the lowest slopes of the Mount of Olives, directly across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem and the temple. And by the way, it would have been about a 10 minute walk. To get from Jerusalem, from the temple over to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Luke's account is different, of course, from uh, Matthew's account and uh, when you bring the Gospel accounts together, you, you see this full picture. Uh, Jesus didn't just pray once, Father, and wrestle with the question of whether He should go through with, uh, with going to the cross just once, He wrestled with it three times. And he began to sweat great drops of blood, and it was at the end of his prayer time that the angel came to minister him and to encourage him and to strengthen him, you see. It was in this garden that Jesus won back that which was lost in another garden. And we're going to read that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6.
2: Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Hmm. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Hmm.
1: Thank you very much. The controversy began. It had come to planet Earth, hasn't it? Hadn't it? In this particular garden, in the Garden of Eden, not the Garden of Gethsemane, but in the Garden of Eden, the Earth was plunged into a battle between good and between evil. In this garden, it was where sin entered the world. And here mankind was duped into believing the, li- the devil's lies. So that was, a, that was that garden and that's why we experience what we experience today, why there's death, there's pain, there's suffering, there's sorrow, it all began in the Garden of Eden, all began, began with a choice. We'll talk about that choice in just a little bit but in that other garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wasn't sure at that moment whether He wanted to go through with the cross. At that moment, He wasn't sure whether He wanted to, to follow on through. Three times he came and he prayed and he said, God, if you, if it, if it would be possible, if you could still save mankind without me needing to go to the cross, let it be so. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. Three times, and Jesus sweat great drops of blood. We're told. What was the big difference between or what happened in both of these gardens? What's the big difference that took place between what happened in the Garden of Eden and what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, in Eden. Adam and Eve didn't consult God, but what did they consult instead? They consulted their own desires and in turn, they ended up surrendering their wills to the enemy's suggestion. That's it in a nutshell. That's basically in a nutshell. They didn't consult God and ended up surrendering, not themselves to the will of God, but they ended up surrendering their wills to that of the enemy. On the other hand, however, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reclaimed what our first parents lost. And how did He reclaim that? He reclaimed it through prayer. He reclaimed it through what else? Self-surrender. He surrendered His will. Not my will, but your will be done. And He also also claimed it through concern for the lost, because it was ultimately you and I that He saw. He saw this world. He saw the, the perishing, and He said, I must go through with it. Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done three times and great drops of blood came down from his brow that's a condition known as hematidrosis that is associated with high degrees of physical stress which causes a release of a chemical which breaks down the capillaries in the sweat glands and as a result there is a small amount of bleeding into the glands and the sweat comes out tin- tinged with blood i want to read to you from desire of ages the uh, Ellen White's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, uh, hopefully you have the book Desire of Ages as a whole chapter dedicated to what took place. The battle was waging hot there in the Garden of Gethsemane. She says three times He had uttered that prayer. Three times the prayer, not my will, thy will be done. Three times His humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise up before him. He beholds his impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood, that through him, perishing, millions may gain everlasting life. She goes on to say, he has left the courts of heaven... Where, it's, where all is purity, happiness, and glory, to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression. And he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Aren't you glad that there Jesus decided once and for all he was going to go through with it? What was the cup that he needed to drink from? It was the cup of God's wrath. Not God's wrath on humanity, but God's wrath on sin. It is sin that God despises because it comes between him and us, you see. And it was that cup that Jesus needed to drink, the cup of God's wrath on sin. Although all hell was about to break loose on Jesus, for even now they were coming to the garden. Even now his betrayer, who we'll talk about in just a little bit, was attending and coming with the temple guards to arrest Jesus, even though He was about to be led from one place to another during His trial, even though He was about to go to the cross, Jesus, by His example, showed us that prayer and surrender to God's will are two important and absolutely necessary elements to meet all of life's challenges and life's perplexities and needs. Jesus gave a wonderful example. Sometimes we all have our moment. We have our our Gethsemane. Lord, am I going to go through with it? Am I going to follow through with your will? This is such a hard decision. And I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to suffer the consequences of the decision that I'm going to make in following you. I don't know what my family's going to say. I think I know what some of my friends are going to say. I'm not sure what they're going to think if I stand for you and your truth. This is a tough decision. And we, like Jesus, simply say, not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to follow you no matter the cost. I'm going to leave the consequences of that decision in your hands. I'm going to follow you all the way through prayer and through self-surrender. God can help us through our times, our moments of Gethsemane. Let's look at Monday's lesson. Let's talk about the betrayer, Judas. It's interesting, you don't really hear uh, parents naming their children Judas, do you? I, actually, I've never run into a Judas, have you? I don't think I have, I haven't either. You know, what is what is Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, known for? He's known for, the first word that comes to your lip is betrayal. Yeah, he's known for his for self-interest, his selfishness, he's known for his greed, he was money hungry and he's definitely known for betrayal. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Luke chapter 22 and verse 3, and notice what Luke says here about Judas. Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So here was one of Jesus' disciples, his name was Judas Iscariot, And um, apparently, he probably was the only disciple that was not from Galilee, but here he was, and the Bible says that Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Interesting. The action of Judas to betray Jesus was no, no surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew it all along. This was, by the way, Judas's first contact that we're reading here in Luke chapter 22. It was his first contact with the religious and Jewish leaders for the purpose of betraying Jesus. You can read the similar account in Matthew chapter 26 verse 14. John makes the same observation about Judas as the third time and the final contact with the Jewish leaders on the night of his betrayal. So just run over there with me to John chapter 13, if you would. John 13 verses 2 and verse 27. I want you to notice how John Uh, speaks about Judas, and again, with relationship to how the enemy of souls came into his life. In John chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, "And, and supper being ended, the devil having what? Already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Look at verse 27 now. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. All right, and so what do these accounts with regard to Judas and the devil have already been having already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus or Satan coming into his heart to betray Jesus? What do these accounts tell us about that phrase? Then Satan entered Jesus. Was it a sudden overnight experience that Judas had? Did Judas just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I feel like betraying Jesus today is that what happened? Or was the door, did Judas crack open the door of his heart to the suggestions of the enemy well before the events of that, that evening? Certainly he had. How important is it that we take stock of ourselves that we also don't fall to self-deception? Because here's the, here's the fact, and by the way, someone's got John chapter 12 verses 1 through 8, who's got that right here? Okay, we'll get to that in just a moment, because here's the, here's the reality no one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to commit adultery. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm just going to, I'm just going to jump off the bridge. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do this horrendous, commit this horrendous crime or, 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 or do this or to do that. No one just wakes up in the morning and makes that decision. It's something that is fostered and it's something that is thought about and it's something that is nurtured over time. And when we learn about Judas, Judas's spirit, his heart was in a different place. And it was that which culminated in his ultimate betrayal of Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about that. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Thank you.
3: Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spicknard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, mm-hmm. but me you do not have always.
1: Thank you very much. So, what's happening here? Where's Judas's heart in this instance? Here, Mary had poured out, spent quite a bit of money for this precious ointment, this fragrant oil, and she'd poured it out uh, upon Jesus. And what was Judas's response? Well, hang on a second, you know, you've just wasted a whole lot of money here on this man. And uh, rather, that money should have gone where? To help the poor. But what does John tell us? John lets us into the heart, into the mind of Judas. He didn't say it because he had a regard or concern for the poor, but because he was a what? A thief. He had the money box. As a matter of fact, Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. If you, uh, if you were to uh, talk with Judas and you were to look at Judas, you would say that probably, he probably was the most prominent or, or had the most potential out of all of the disciples. He was educated, knew what he was doing, he looked good perhaps and yet his heart was not in the right place. He believed, like all the other disciples, that Jesus was the Messiah but His perception of the Messiah was different than what the Bible's, uh, the truth regarding the Messiah was, what the truth regarding the Messiah taught, that Jesus had come to establish an earthly kingdom, that's what Judas wanted. But Jesus had come to establish a, what did He come to establish? The kingdom of God in where? In the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, you see. Of course, in Jesus you had the the future kingdom that He would eventually establish and set up, but if no one, if you didn't accept uh, and and enter into the kingdom of grace through faith, you wouldn't be prepared to enter into the kingdom of glory when Jesus comes back the second time, you see. And so Judas hoped that Jesus would establish uh, His earthly kingdom. Earlier on in John chapter 6 verse 70, Jesus said of Judas, have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? all the way back then. This, and by the way, John chapter 6, this is the story where Jesus fed a multitude and, uh, and uh, from uh, five, about 5,000 men, uh, not including women and children. And the event was so, uh, was so impressive. The folk were so uh, taken back by what Jesus had done that they wanted to, at that point, anoint and crown Him King we're told in Desire of Ages that Judas was one of the first ones to get on that bandwagon and, and encourage the coronation of Jesus at that point. Here was, here was the issue. Jesus had just fed this multitude. Man, can you imagine? If we're routed out by the enemy, the Romans, and we're stuck here in Jerusalem, and they're, they're trying to get in and they, they can't get in and we're running out of food, what could Jesus do? He could, he could feed an army if there, were no, there was no food. And they wanted to crown Jesus king. But what did Jesus do? If you remember the story, Jesus did what? He withdrew himself and he left. And and Ellen White's talking about Judas' experience. She said that his hopes were high and his disappointment was bitter. Bitter. He couldn't understand what was going on in Jesus' head and he didn't understand the ministry and mission of Jesus and it perplexed him. As a matter of fact, in betraying Jesus, he had hoped to force Jesus to reveal who he really was To break the shackles of the Romans and to release and free Israel from Rome. And when Jesus didn't do so, Judas gave the money back, the 30 pieces of silver, and went out, not with genuine repentance, but burdened with guilt, unwilling to repent and hung hung himself. In another book that Ellen White wrote, Steps to Christ, she said there are going to be many people hoping and wishing to be saved, but will end up being lost. What's the difference? Where's the rub? The rub is whether a person fully surrenders their will to the will of Jesus. Not just when you wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm yours, but you know as well as I do, there are moments and encounters each and every day that test you and try you. And at those moments, you're saying, Lord, not my will, your will be done. Not me, not self, but let Jesus live out his life through me. It's not me, I want Jesus to be seen here. Awfully tempting right now for Chris to show his true colors, but no, no, I want Jesus to show his true colors right now. There are moments of surrender we face, sometimes they're moment by moment. The battle is waging hot. The question is whether we are going to surrender ourselves fully to Christ uh, or not. Surrender fully. That was the difference with Judas. He had nurtured this this hunger, this greed for for money, and he would not give it up, uh, even to save his his entire life life. Um, you know, it's interesting that he, uh, a misunderstanding regarding the Kingdom of God, his desire to, to see Jesus establish an earthly kingdom, caused him to lose his eternal salvation, the eternal kingdom that Jesus will eventually come and establish. It's ironic and it's sad. Again, the, uh, if you go to Desire of Ages, there's a whole chapter dedicated to the story of Judas and it, uh, it, it spells it all out and it's phenomenal. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Jesus is betrayed by Judas after his night in Gethsemane, either for or against him. Matthew chapter 12 verse 30 says, this is Jesus' words, he says, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. There is no middle road with Jesus, that's what Jesus was saying, there's no middle road when it comes to Jesus and if there is, you know who owns that road? The devil. There is no middle road when it comes to Jesus. Jesus' death and his resurrection brings humanity to the crossroads. Humanity must decide whether Christ who whether Christ is or if he is not. We can learn from others' encounters as well. Let's go to Luke chapter 22 verse 53. Let's take a look at what we can learn from others' encounters. Luke chapter 22 verse 53. I'm not going to be able to read all of these, but uh, I'll just highlight them for us so you can make some notes. Luke chapter 22, verse 53, Jesus said, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the hour, or the power rather, of light? No, the power of what? Darkness. Darkness. The power of darkness. This is when Jesus is in Gethsemane. The temple guard has come and uh, Jesus has been betrayed into their hands. And he says, you didn't come to me when I was in the temple teaching, but now you come to me. This is the hour of your darkness, when I was with you daily. To carry out sinister plans in the evening is probably a good plan when you're a crook, right? But the spiritual darkness that surrounded these men, the chief priests, the temple guard, the elders, was Darker than the darkness of night. Darkness doesn't just happen to somebody. It is the nurturing, in the case of these individuals, it was the nur- nurturing of jealousy and the nurturing of lies that led them to despise Jesus. They didn't get up that morning and say, "You know what? Let's just go arrest Jesus." They had wanted to do this for a long time, and they'd nurtured the, 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 the lies, that they'd nurtured the jealousies. And they made a decision, and the decision wasn't for Jesus, it was what? It was against Jesus. When you're confronted with the claims of Jesus, when you're confronted with who Jesus is, you have to make a decision. We have to make a decision for Him. That's the the prayer. That's the hope, right? That's what we ought to do. Amen? Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 7 and then 13 to 25 tells us of the story of Pilate. Pilate basically was a time server. He was a man, he was a people pleaser. He enjoyed pleasing people. When in reality it mattered to do the right thing, he was powerless to help Jesus. You remember, he even gave, up, um, even gave up Jesus to be flogged before the crowd in the hope that it would appease them and it would satisfy them. But as they saw the blood come from Jesus' back, they, become, they became more bloodthirsty and they cried out to crucify Jesus. Pilate had hoped that it would assuage their, their passion for his death. I'm going to punish him right in front of you. And, they did, and, he, and he did, and they did. And um, but yet they cried out, crucify, crucify him. And they chose instead a, a murderer and a thief in place of Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And Pilate seemed to give them every opportunity to choose someone other than Jesus. But if Pilate had truly uh, wanted to do the right thing, he wouldn't have washed his hands of the whole affair, right? Because that's ultimately what he did. Washed his hands of the entire affair. Even his wife came to him and said, have nothing to do with this man. I've dreamed dreams. I've seen things. Don't fool around here. Make the right decision. And Pilate did not, because he was accustomed to pleasing himself and pleasing others. And when it really mattered, he couldn't make the right decision. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12, and someone has Luke 23, 39 through 43? Right over here. Okay, fantastic. We're going to get a mic over to you, and we're going to read that in just a quick moment here. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12, speaks about Herod, Herod, King Herod. You remember Herod? Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife, and you remember John the Baptist had called him to, essentially, to repentance, said, you're doing the wrong thing here, man, You, you can't be having your brother's wife like this. And so what did Herod end up doing? Herod ended up allowing for the head uh, of John the Baptist. Ended up allowing John the Baptist's head to be taken from his shoulders. Was that a decision Herod woke up and made that particular day? No, he had earlier on been confronted with the claims of Jesus and he had nurtured his uh, disdain. He had nurtured uh, his um, love of self and he ultimately ultimately uh, was, uh, became a lost man and that's why when Jesus was confronted, uh, when he was brought before Herod, Jesus had nothing to say to the man, had nothing whatsoever. Herod wanted to see miracles, he wanted to see the claims of Jesus and Jesus had nothing to say to him. He'd already been given plenty of opportunity and he'd sealed his fate long ago. Luke chapter 23 verses 39 to 43, another account, thank you.
3: One of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, "'Assuredly, I say to you, "'today you will be with me in paradise.'" Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you very much. So here you have Jesus on the cross, two thieves, same cross, two thieves looking at the same cross and you get two different responses. How is it possible? How is it possible that the sun, different objects can have a different response to the heat of the sun? Uh, Wax melts under the heat of the sun. Clay hardens under the heat of the sun. So here you had two men, two responses to Jesus. One continued to reject Jesus, the other one, who initially ridiculed Jesus, ended up seeing Jesus for who He was and ended up turning his heart over to Christ. You see, when when Christ's claims cannot be ignored, Christ's claims can never be ignored, you either have to accept who He says He is or you reject them. But when you accept them, you must embrace them, not neglect them, not reject them, embrace them, you see. But if they're rejected, if Christ's claims are rejected by anyone, then the end of that person or those people will be disastrous. Either we are for Jesus or we are against Him. The cross, Jesus' cross and His resurrection brings people to a point of decision. And may our decision always be in favor of Jesus. What do you say? Sure. All right, let's go to Wednesday's lesson. Let's talk about Jesus being risen. I'm sure the last thing that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and some of the other women... Uh, who had come to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial, expected to find was Jesus was Jesus not in the tomb. And you read that in Luke chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. It says, and He is not here, but He is... The angel said, He is not here, He is risen. Remember how He spoke to you when He was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, <clears throat> and the third day rise again. The first few chapters of Acts, written also by Luke... Makes eight references to the resurrection of Jesus. You have Acts chapter 1, verse 22, uh, where they're choosing a replacement for Jesus, and they had to be chosen. This person had to be chosen among those who had witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36, just write them down here. Peter's Pentecostal sermon stresses the fact of Jesus' resurrection. In Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Peter's second sermon references Jesus' resurrection. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested uh, and that arrest is initiated because they are preaching the resurrected Christ. And then in Acts chapter 5, the preaching of Christ's resurrection led the apostles to stand trial. Did the, did the religious leaders want the, the, the fact to be known, the reality to be known that Jesus had risen from the dead? No. When they found out he'd risen, what did they say? They called those guards and they said, you've got to lie. You've got to say that uh, the disciples came in at night and stole him away and um, it was an interesting request to say the least you think the guards would have would have said oh we were sleeping at our post and somehow the disciples came by and if they were sleeping how do they know who actually came by anyway right um, Interesting, but uh, that was the case, that they did not want anyone to know that Jesus had truly risen from the dead and the disciples got into trouble. Here's the question, why was the resurrection of Jesus so pivotal in the preaching of the apostles and in the faith of the early church? And why is it crucial for us today? A couple of quick verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, it says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is what? Not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also what? Empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Notice, notice how the resurrection of Jesus is connected to the ultimate resurrection of the saints when Jesus comes back, and also resurrection of, 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 of change of life, of power in the life of the believer. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all men most what? Miserable. So verses 13 to 14 stresses the emptiness of faith without the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ be not risen, Christian witnesses condemned on two accounts. One, Jesus repeatedly declared that He would rise from the dead and He, if He didn't, then He'd be an imposter. Number two, the apostles were basing their preaching on an event that they alleged did occur and thus they would be parties to the imposter, holding out a hope that could not be fulfilled. And then, of course, in verses 16 to 17 that we read, they reveal the hopelessly lost condition of a man apart from the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was paramount and important to the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. Notice Romans chapter 4 verses 23 to 25 reminds us that it is not written for our sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our what? our justification. Justification is given to those who accept and commit themselves to God's whole plan of salvation in faith in Jesus Christ, which means that to love the living Christ and to look for Him, it means to love the living Christ and to look for Him for intercession and for transforming power. On the cross, Jesus gave Himself for us, but through His resurrection, He gives Himself through the Holy Spirit to us. Moreover, the resurrection of Jesus assures us that what He has done for our redemption has been approved by the Father and that God's purposes through Him are going to be accomplished. The resurrection proves the truth of Christ's claims concerning Himself and the certainty of the promise of salvation to the sinner. In Desire of Ages, page 785, we're told Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits of those that slept. He was the antitype of the wave sheaf, And His resurrection took place on the very day when the wave sheaf was to be presented before the Lord. For more than a thousand years, this symbolic ceremony had been performed. From the harvest fields to the first heads of ripened grain were gathered. And when the people went up to Jerusalem to the Passover, the sheaf of first fruits was waved as a thank offering before the Lord. Not until this was presented, could the sickle be put put to the grain and be gathered into the sheaves. The sheaf dedicated to God represented the harvest." So Christ, the first fruits, represented the great spiritual harvest to be gathered for the kingdom of God. His resurrection is the type and pledge of the resurrection of the righteous dead. Isn't that wonderful? So Jesus was raised for our, for our justification and He was raised so that if we sleep in Jesus, we might also be raised as well. So death doesn't, is not final. You can imagine how the devil must have felt. When Jesus broke the fetters of the tomb, he thought he'd, it was all sealed and it was all final. But Jesus was raised and was victorious over sin, over death and over the devil. Let's close our lesson by looking at Thursday and we're going to give a quick summary here. The story is essentially about the, the walk to Emmaus. Two disciples are traveling back to Emmaus. They're disappointed in what happened, the events over the weekend. They don't know that Jesus has risen. They're upset they're sad, and you can read the story in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. And um, in this story, and not only this story, but also a second story, where they come back to the disciples and they tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead, Jesus appears to both the two disciples and to the other disciples, and He does something very important. He does something very important. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27... Jesus said, then he said to them, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, a thing concerning himself. So what did he do before he revealed himself to these disciples? He opened the scriptures and he revealed to them the prophecies of the scripture and showed them that everything that was written was fulfilled in him. What was he trying to do? He was trying to get their faith to be planted and rested upon, thus saith the Lord. Not necessarily the eyewitness, the eyewitness account. The same thing happened in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45. And then in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 16 to 21, I won't read it all, and I know someone has, had this to read, but I'm just going to run by you if you don't mind. The Apostle Peter, talking about the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, he says that we have a more sure word of prophecy that we would do well to take heed. He said, don't necessarily believe what you see with your eyes, but first of all and first and foremost, believe what you read with your eyes. Read, believe what you read in the Holy Scriptures and believe these words. So we have the prophetic word confirmed. Jesus appealed to the Bible to authenticate his life, his death, and his resurrection, and he showed that their faith and our faith must be firmly secured on a clear, thus saith the Lord, more than what they had seen and more than what we see. Accepting what the Bible says then becomes the basis also of, of a powerful witnessing experience. It was, their, it was their acceptance of these truths from the Scripture that gave them the, that, th- that thrust them that moved them forward to the proclamation of a crucified and risen Saviour. Well, there's so much we could talk about, but we have to wrap it up. Luke is an was an awesome is an awesome uh, awesome book, wonderful account regarding the story of Jesus. The most sublime the most sublime truths in the Bible regarding Jesus. Luke, Jesus, Luke records that Jesus came into this world, who suffered, who died for our sins, who rose again victorious over sin, over Satan, and o- and over death. And all of this he did for you and for me. And He offers it to you and to me, His victory, so that we might all be saved at last. Don't you want to receive Jesus a brand new again here this morning? I know I do. Thank you so much for, uh, for being a good, uh, a good class here today. And those that have joined us, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to call in for your free offer. It's offer number 21526. And uh, you want to call in at 916-457-6511. Email us at, csh at saccentral.org. This is 13th Sabbath, so don't forget those that are viewing us, be sure you turn in your 13th Sabbath offering. It's going towards some wonderful projects out there in the North Asia Pacific. They're all here on the back of your Sabbath school quarterly. Next week, we're going to be delving into our new lesson, Biblical Missionaries, and we look forward to sharing that together with you.